Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network and the channel New Books and Art. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and today I'm speaking with Vesna Kittleson. Vesna's art is the subject of a new book from the Afton Press, uh, distributed by the University of Minnesota Press. The title is Synthesis, Lost and Found in America, the Art of Vesna Kittleson. This is a lavishly illustrated book with a collection of very insightful essays by different contributors. And Vesna, I want to welcome you to the program. And I'd like to open our conversation today with this question. Um, With your fascinating background, study of law, and many other things, when did you begin to consider art as a career option? Hi, Kirsten. I appreciate knowing you, Kirsten, on, on at this moment, uh, where we are going to have this interview. And I would like to say that uh, this very question that you're starting with uh, brings lots of memories for me because I feel that I was always an art, child artist, you know. But as far as the uh, start of the career, it actually starts with my coming to, to America. I arrived here with the law degree that I gained in Croatia. And the first thing that I wanted to do was to register immediately into the fine arts department at the University of Minnesota and uh, learn how to do painting particularly was my interest at that time. And so I left the idea of being a lawyer and working in an office like that and went to um, studio arts department uh, on, I think, fourth day of my being in here in Minneapolis, and I entered a a room that was very large. It was a sort of a a lunch room in the department of fine arts, and it was a room that was full of people who were, you know, the models and professors and students. There were three dogs, and there was a boombox playing I can get no satisfaction. <laughs> that moment when I entered this atmosphere, which was so free and so casual and beautiful, and I think a lot of intelligence was there, I decided this is where I want to be. I want to be an artist. I will pursue this as my career. And then, of course, when I started doing my courses, which was on that day, I was introduced to completely new concept that I never heard about. And so uh, one faculty group was talking about minimalism and the other one about abstract expressionism. And I knew this was my time to learn about this and become a professional artist. Oh, I love the detail about the dog (laughs) and what was playing in the background. Yes. Um, What a wonderful atmosphere. Yes, and it's so so so. Excuse me, it's so true that um, 
there's a creativity in the art scene that you really you can't capture. You have to be in it, right? Um, so maybe as a, a follow-up there, you mentioned one professor was talking about abstract expressionism, the other about minimalism. And we see these uh, abstract pieces that you produced. And I'm wondering how your interest in abstract art developed. Well, that was really about uh, my coming here to, to America. I, I never was uh, exposed to much abstraction at home. Uh, in Croatia, where I live, in city called Split, even though there are many exhibitions, I was not really aware of, of abstraction at all. And then, when I finished my um, degree there, and I wanted to be this professional artist, I thought to myself, you know what? I don't know anything about painting. I am going to begin with abstract expressionism, where I can explore elements of art that will be part of my pursuit and my compositions that will come in my paintings. And so I thought that the very best thing for me to do was to, in abstract expressionist manner, take question of studying color and behavior of color, which I did uh, by eliminating every other element. I mean, this was only color fields that were having different colors interacting with one another. And this was the first time I had a very specific and very deep study of how color behaves. And for me, minimalism at that time was the way of taking this one very most important element to me to this day, a color, and studying it. And so that is, you know, how I started. But the idea of... uh, Minimalism really came from my faculty people who were talking about, you know, uh, that as a movement in, 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 in the studio arts. And it seemed to me like what I needed, and that was to study elements of, of, of design for my painting. This was the most important element that I wanted to study. And, you know, to this day, people even going through the book tell me, you know, you, you really have a special interest in color. It is true. This was my first element, and abstract uh, expressionism at that time was not my, my path. It was minimalism, where I, with the roller, applied the paint on paper and made color fields that were interacting uh, as colors with each other. I like what you're saying about isolating, you know, color is, is your focus no matter what you're doing or it's always there and I just wanted to mention that I really fell in love with the 1971 piece uh, the design for the French interior with rose and green oh I hope that people who uh, are listening really want to purchase the book and go look at that work and the interaction of the colors it's just in an ab very minimal way it is a French interior Yes, it is. And I lived in Paris and went to different places, you know, as you do when when you're young, you go to all kinds of places. And then later on, I was thinking, so what in terms of colors do I take from Paris? What would describe it? And of course, I'm not claiming that I'm describing it. But to me, it seemed like that very particular combination would be very much about the French interiors that stayed in my mind as a, as a kind of a 
you know, a, 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 a sum total of summa summarum of, of my experience there. Yes. What a challenge. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> of course, I mean, when you're young, you don't think so much about worries about will this be understood or interpreted. I never thought I would ever have a book or have a support by Minnesota State Arts Board and the museum, like the Wiseman Museum. I never thought of those things. I just thought of what would be that I would select as colors to describe my Paris experience. You know, I was there for four months and just looking at different buildings inside and outside. So this would be interior, which was always so full of light and energy that I had tried to capture in that piece. This is uh, these words are instructive for newer artists um, as well. Do what you do, and then further down the line, there will be opportunities, and I think that's important. And particularly if we are thinking of future artists who might be hearing this, you know, I'd like to mention that uh, while I was studying uh, studying color, I was looking at it as I my eyes wanted to, you know. Uh, conclude what was happening and so on. But later on, when I was teaching, I was teaching color. And I really told students that, you know, while you can do everything on a computer, it is so important to mix the paints with your own hands, that you have a palette, that you are editing it, you know, before you do an application. I think that, yes, I think technology brought us these possibilities that we can do mixing of the colors on a, on a computer, but do it yourself, you know, uh, mix it, get paints, get a palette, get a palette knife and work with that. And also I, I'm just imagining the smell and the other sensations, right? right? When you're working with paint. Yes. It's very physical. Wonderful. Yeah. So don't avoid, I would say to, you know, future artists, don't avoid experiencing that because that is a really a, quite a wonderful layer that you would get from working with that way. Well, speaking of maybe younger artists who are listening, um, and that you don't have to be a young artist listening, will you talk about uh, your role in a women's collective art space, also known as WARM, and how yes. that factored into your art and your identity? Yes. So you began with asking me about when did I think of art as my career. There were actually several times that I had thought this is really the only thing I want to do in my life. So first part was, you know, trying to develop elements of design, beginning with color and minimalism. But the second time when it happened, I needed, I needed, I felt a community of artists that would uh, be talking about the processes and, and uh, you know, seeing their work. And I was uh, um, um, given the opportunity to become part of, of the Women's Collective in, in Minnesota, which was a feminist organization. And I felt that this is where I really belong. This is where I want to be, be with these women that were creating art and, uh, and uh, also career. And for me, um, there was an additional layer because I was an immigrant and rather still rather new. I had never experienced um, 
democracy at work. You know, this was the place where this was happening. Uh, there would be in the meetings that were monthly meeting things, there would be, you know, about 20, 22 people um, sort of scratching their heads and saying we should, you know, have um, this woman artist as a, as a visitor to, to come and give a talk and, and, and visit the gallery. We should have this kind of program or we should have um, these kinds of exhibitions. And it was all sort of made um, in these meetings, shaped in these meetings. It was absolutely fantastic for me. I had never experienced anything like that. And uh, to just see how beautiful things grow out of of uh, sort of, um, you know, just, just an idea, a question, what kind of exhibitions should we have this year? You know, and then you see them being made, and then you see them being realized, and then you see people, public, and we had quite a bit of support by the public coming to see these exhibitions or to hear our guest artists who came from anywhere in America to speak to us. And so these were absolutely fantastic sequences for me to observe where people just have an idea presented to the group and then the group sort of talks about it, thinks about it, and, and then makes a decision which way to go. And uh, this was a very beautiful time for me and impacting time because I have always stayed since then uh, only with the, with the uh, you know, groups that were, that were um, like that, that were interested in being part of a community in a different way from a commercial gallery. Very important, I think, what you're saying about the idea of the commercial gallery versus working collaboratively. Yes. And um, do you, so I'm going to ask. Organizations, yes. you know, are very much m- more allowing for you as an artist to just make the work that you want to make. You're not making the work that you know the gallery will sell. And even, you know, I'm all for galleries, for all galleries. I'm very supportive of all of them. I know they all make efforts. But to me, the fact that uh, a non-commercial approach to art making meant that you would really make very much the art that's in you. Related to the non-commercial motivation, you have so many different and really powerful, I may I say, genres in your scope here of what you've made. Um, and I wanted to ask you about maybe what influenced you, whether from the other artists you were working with and, of course, the politics of the time with your war paintings Yes, um, in, the ni- in the late 1980s. Yes. You know, at that time, war paintings were very unpopular. And I would often hear, you know, oh, this this is really wonderful work. But, you know, we are democracy. We are not thinking about wars. And then, as you know, Kirsten, we have ended up the United States in several wars beginning in 2003. Wars are not something that is, you know... uh, related to a location or to any particular human groups, group, they are often there 
We don't want them. We can't really stop them very often, and they happen. So I decided when uh, Croatia was in, 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 uh, attacked and, and uh, I saw some images from there, um, you know, I went through a lot of artists who did war paintings. You know, I'm talking about, for example, Goya, and then we also have Manet's work, and then, you know, uh, certainly most importantly, Beckman and Kate Colwitz and so on. There are people who have done fantastic works that were inspiring for me because I basically was not and am not interested in wars in terms of armies, in terms of winning and losing. I'm not interested in weaponry or actually even the politics behind it. I am much more interested in saying something about an individual, a citizen, a civilian that is stuck in a war situation and cannot change it. I was wondering what must it feel like to be a mother whose child going to school uh, was uh, attacked with a grenade and, and very wounded. What must it be like to be someone like that. You can't really change it. You can't stop it. But there you are. You're caught in the middle of a very intense and very wrong situation. There is a human element. I I extrapolate from what you're saying that um, also transcends the details of the politics and who did what and why and when. If I'm hearing this correctly and I think that leads us to emotion right in your work and um I yes very much not about soldiers for me and 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 uh, um you know countries that that um offend one another and so on it is about uh innocent citizen being caught in the in those political decisions, you know, of course, the political decisions are inevitably there, you know, in the paintings, but but not as obviously as what it must feel like to be stuck, to be in that kind of chaos. You know how Max Beckman was so able to talk about the chaos inside and outside caused by politics, you know, the madness that, that happens to you, you know such wrongs that you never imagined and that you cannot leave, you cannot change, you cannot influence. There you are. They're happening to you. What must that be like? Because I think that even soldiers, of course, um, I think of them as human beings and they are often hurt and damaged and whatnot. And and as, as I did in a piece called Timishwara, uh, Soldiers were actually uh, children that were taken away from their families and raised in barracks to be able to attack even their cousins, I mean, people in the cities where they were from. And, you know, certainly that all matters, and that that is a part of that madness and and craziness of war. But uh, how must it feel to just have this chaos that you cannot navigate through? is what I'm thinking and, and feel yes. very great sympathy for. 
sympathy and you feel that um, you gain, um, or I say, what do you gain from the experience of composing, creating the artwork that speaks to the, as you said, the chaos? And as the artist, do you feel a sense of uh, release or is it even possible to describe? Uh uh, probably difficult to describe because this is vi- visual arts and not uh, language, and I'm not particularly good at languages, I'm sure you noticed, but I feel that I am always deeply into what it is ever that I'm doing, you know, whatever topic. So I would uh, uh, feel um, a c- kind of a- energy of commitment to, to these citizens, you know, that I will never meet, never had met. You know, I feel commitment to them. I feel like I need, as an artist, to say something, whether paintings that are about war are popular or not. I didn't care about, you know, standing in the in the culture of not being very popular kind of art. Uh, I felt that wars are forever, unfortunately, you know, and that I sympathize with that side that is innocent side that happens to be caught in between political decisions which are always there and always dangerous. And and uh, uh, I think the chaos is particularly of interest to me because that is uh, a matter of location, you know, that kind of chaos. Where citizen cannot, uh, a parent cannot go and collect child uh, from school because something happened in the meantime in the, in the space between... Uh, uh, the living area and the school. You know, sometimes there are grenades and fire and tanks and they forbid you to go. And, you know, these are the kinds of that I, uh, moments that I think are chaos. And I feel really committed to remembering people who have gone through that. I don't need to know them. I don't need to know what human group we are talking about. This has been always present. Hearing your words makes me, your point about committing a commitment makes me wonder if we turn to portraiture, specifically within your work, we have self-portraits and then we also have um, this wonderful series, The Young Americans, a series of portraits. Um, Would you tell us more about the self-portraits? portraits first. Yes. Uh, so so self-portraits came during the the time of, of you know, um, my thinking about the war. And uh, I was thinking, you know, to me, to this day, what is lacking in, let's say, exhibitions, uh, as a great exhibition or two or ten or a hundred of self-portraits, because they tell about artists at the given moment what he or she were thinking about. And while I actually had people who offered their face for me to work through portraiture, I thought at first I would work with only my face because I don't have to apologize for it. I don't have to worry whether I like it or not. And because I had perceived myself as a person that can, you know, think and feel very intensely. And if that shows in the portrait. That's what I want to do, you know. I want to show them um, as as an expression of of 
particular, you know, degree of intensity of feelings. And so I started making them, these portraits, uh, first on paper and shaping them as if they were somewhat three-dimensional as a face is or a head, human head is. And I would uh, have sort of expressive colors. I was very influenced by um, German expressionists who would make a green face, a purple dog or horse, you know. And I thought, well, that that is really kind of corresponding to how I want to think about self-portraits. And I decided in my case that I would make them into cutouts. So when I was finished with the portrait on the paper, I would start shaping it or shaping it as I am moving through the painting, as I'm making it. And then, as you can maybe um, remember, piece called Hesitant, which is self-portrait with the hat, I use a hat as an abstraction that is balancing with the expression that is not abstract, you know, that is about certain kind of thought or feeling or pondering person's um, portrait. And... I started adding elements to these portraits that would kind of give a balance with uh, something like pleasure and fun. Like I have also portrait hesitant, which is self-portrait with a fan, you know. So I was thinking of Goya's fans to then put that as a maybe hair, maybe hat, maybe a fan. And, And so that is the playful part. But the expression is of the pe- per- person, which was self-portrait, was rather often pensive and and thoughtful. I believe that you have. I know you have a quote in the book that really relates to your description of the pensive and the playful. And you write um, of the self-portraits: they are documents of a life being lived with emotion and intelligence. Yes. Yes. I, I, I you know yes. people often use word uh, emotional art as as if it is something uh you know a little inferior no i am very interested actually in the in the intelligence of a person that's a portrait and that's how i decided a very important decision was to 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 make young americans and their intelligence you know i of course uh, was seduced and expressed their beauty because they're young and gorgeous. But every one of these portraits were also about intelligence. So that began really with my self-portraits. You know, I wanted to show that this portrait is about, you know, a thoughtful person, a person that is aware of her environment. And I put that into this expression. Then... At the end, I take scissors and I cut the portrait uh, out to be put directly on the wall. So it cuts the distance between the viewer and the piece. And this really became kind of a most important, most relevant part of how I work. And I earlier even, during the abstract painting uh, period, I made the question to my art, what is my art communicating to me? When I put it on the wall, what is it saying? Who am I as an artist? And the answer was that I was a Baroque minimalist. 
this doesn't exist. Of course, this is just my humorous way of describing myself. But uh, why is that? Because I think the Baroque part is the maximalness of everything in the piece. But I take a scissor and I cut out everything around this portrait or the abstract painting that is not to be part of my work. So that would be like, you know, making a decision to make it really minimalist. Nothing, nothing that is cut off can be part of my work. And then maximalism in the expression inside. What a wonderful pairing, Baroque, minimal, maximum, minimum. And we, we learn um, through the book that this, I'm very interested in what you were saying about cutting, because then we come to some projects with distressed books. Um, yes, um, at the end, yes. but... Uh, you know, I was going to also mention that I continue with cutouts in the in the young Americans. So I, I actually, what you're saying is uh, just clarifying that it, it it continues through my career. This cutting and changing, you know, cutting and changing uh, the piece by removing that which I don't think should be there. Maybe along these lines, we could turn to Mrs. Darwin's garden. I chose this because it was one of my favorites. Um, will you tell us about how you modified, or what would you like to tell us about who Mrs. Darwin is in, and what about her garden from this piece? Okay, so Mrs. Darwin's garden are four four books that I made for first time in my life. Um, I made uh, bo- uh, you know books that I I created on something that I felt was an important theme. Um, in 2009, my husband and I lived in Cambridge, England. He was a faculty there, and I was given by Churchill College a, a studio. And in that studio, I was preparing myself for exhibition of young Americans. I took this body of work. To Europe to show them how marvelous our young people are. And that would be supposedly my project. But as we arrived in 2009, we realized that uh, Cambridge was committed for a whole year to talking and having many um, uh, uh, um, lectures about who Darwin was. That is because he was educated in Cambridge, and Cambridge had a great deal of documentation that was presented in a magnificent exhibition that I saw. So I started being really impacted by thinking about who Darwin was, and this man had absolutely phenomenally interesting life. Not only did he have uh, great um, ideas, but he also actually had great love with Emma, who was his first cousin and who knew what Darwin was thinking about from the earliest age and the earliest time. So this lovely person, Emma, was very supportive of Darwin as a scientist. But actually, when they married, they found out that they have a great deal of difference in how Emma treated the church and the presence of church in the Victorian time in their household, and what was happening to Darwin, who was, of course, a scientist that was very developed and par excellence and interested in nature, 
not so much in church and God. And so I feel very intrigued then and now when I think about what it must have been for them to keep this relationship vibrant and wonderful. They produced 10 children, but they were also fantastic aunt and uncle. They had a lot of nieces and nephews for their children. So this house was bustling with Emma's piano playing. She was an excellent pianist, a protégé as a child. And today she would be a concert pianist, I'm sure. And so she played music, and there was, of course, always a discussion about science going on with different guests and visitors and these wonderful children and atmosphere. So I became interested in thinking about what, what, could we, what could we, I, do to honor her presence in the background of very great presence of, of Darwin who is so present in England like his son is to us. You know, I mean, he's untouchable. And I thought, how can I do something about this untouchable icon and, and talk about in my way that is not about politics because there are people who hate Darwin and who love Darwin. I'm not one of those people. Instead, I invented a question of... Um, how do I approach Darwin in order to reach Emma? How would I do that? And I thought that I would make up, I would take artistic license of making up uh, the idea that I am uh, uh, an illustrator who can see now in the mind's eye of Darwin with the question of what was he thinking that he would find as a flora in the lands that are unknown to him, before the beagle arrived? What was he thinking a night before? And so I decided I would make these specimens, but the specimens that are completely made up and non-existent, they're based on flowers that we know, but basically they are not any one of the flowers that we know. I have um, made experimental pouring of paints and then then made out of uh, that, um, accidental like image, an image of a plant. And I thought what we could do, uh, what I could do is pretend that these are the plants that I can use to honor Mrs. Darwin. You know, maybe Darwin and I could make a garden for her with these plants that I pretend I can see in his mind's eye. I'm just sort of in awe listening to the project, the idea, the imagination of, you know, what would he have seen before he saw it? And then I remember, I remember throughout your book, you mentioned and you emphasize the importance of questions and how they draw you to your art making. And um, that's quite a question, I think, to ask. Yes, and you know, and again, I mean, this is kind of an artist arrogance, you know. I mean, I take artistic license and pretend that I actually know but Darwin as as his other kind of illustrator, not the proper ones that were there with him. And and uh, you know, I go on with this invented question and uh, invented uh, results of of creating these non-existent specimens 
and say, you know, this is what he was imagining he would see before the beagle arrived to the unknown land and he stepped out of the boat. You know, here it is. And what we will do with this, with this very useless work, we will make a garden for Mrs. Darwin, who was behind him through thick and thin and through very difficult emotional differences about religion and church that they had to live. And out of these books, I even actually made a wall installation that is called the, uh, a garden for Darwin. Because I just can't stop. It seems like there is so much that I can do with this kind of experimental approach to making plants and flowers. And, you know, saying, this can go into the garden for Mrs. Darwin or for both of them. Mentioning, uh, you mentioned that you just can't stop with that. As we wind up our time together, is there anything you can share with us? listeners uh, that you are working on now? Are you still involving the garden project or is there something new? No, no, no. I am, I am really um, kind kind of doing the very last work that, that, that um, is in the book, uh, which is, uh, you know, um, altered dictionaries because I'm an immigrant. I thought of altering dictionaries and altered dictionaries to be put into, um, um, uh, by me designed bookcases where people who, um, you know, carry different language in themselves can all be uh, in that library and peacefully coexist because we know that the language is used very often as, a, as, a, as, a, as offensive material and very provocative material between different human groups. And we have right now a president who is really seen that way, as if he uses our English language in a very offensive way. So this has been historically very present. And I want to have a library where everyone um, of these languages is altered enough and put into the library where they can coexist with all other languages. No one dominates. No one is identified easily. And and right now I am extending myself uh, to doing palimpsest pages, which I don't know if everybody knows what they are, but historically the books were very rare objects when they first came out to this world, as well as documents. And when they would change the owner, the owner would be able to remove the text from the parchment paper of the book or the document, and start writing over it um, new and different text. And I am doing something like that equivalent of uh, writing and rewriting and erasing and changing the page directions and uh, doing uh, very uh, famous works of art. I I have just finished Palimpsest's page with uh, Las Meninas, uh, where I am drawing and redrawing and writing sentences of what we know about it and erasing them and looking for compositions that would come out of that. I, again, I'm, I will spend much time thinking about your new projects, your previous projects, and the many layers involved and in the processes, what a range of process we have 
Um, I want to thank you so much for speaking with the network today. And um, I hope that listeners really want to know more about the book and more about Vesna's art. And again, thank you, Vesna. Thank you very much.